Stand by while NCLA cuts through the noise to signal abuse of administrative power. This is Administrative Static with Mark Chenoweth and John Vecchione. Welcome to Administrative Static. This is John Vecchione, uh, and uh, I, Mark Chenoweth and I are going to bring what I think will be kind of a lively uh, group of issues. Um, but the first one is the filing of our appeal before the Fifth Circuit in Mexican Gulf uh, Company versus uh, Commerce and NOAA. And those of you who have listened for a while uh, know that uh, this is an important Fourth Amendment case. Um, what happened in this case is, is kind of outrageous when you think about it. We, we represent a class of charter boat captains down in the Gulf of Mexico, so basically ranging from Florida to Texas, uh, who, if you've ever been down uh, by the Gulfs, maybe you've uh, gone on one of these trips where you um, – go fishing and you don't have a boat. So they take you out and you go fishing and they drive you out into the, into the Gulf. And, uh, there's about 1300, uh, of these folks with permits from the federal government, from NOAA and national Marine fisheries that, uh, allow you to go do this because the fisheries are the property, if you will, of the United States in the United States waters. So they get to decide, who gets to fish and who doesn't get to fish. And uh, the suit doesn't challenge it. And what they've done in this case is they said that these charter boat captains, um, not only do they have to, call every time they leave dock and say what they're doing and tell the government, I'm leaving the dock. I'm going to go do this, or I'm going to do that. They also have to um, tell them when they think they'll come back and where they're coming back to. And that's most of these, these boats go back to the same dock every night or every day. They go out in the mornings, come back in the afternoon, maybe go on an afternoon trip, come back in the evening. Um, so that's not a huge problem, although why you have to tell the government where you are at all times and, and do a mother may I, I, I'm not so sure. But then the government issued an app and, and this app goes on your phone and it, you have to tell them, uh, how many passengers you have, how many fish you caught, how much gas you used, how much the gas cost and how many employees you have on the, on the boat. Um, and what you're charging your passengers. Uh, now, none of that was in the regulatory notice. So that's a problem, at, at, just as it is, because uh, other than fish catch, but the other economic factors were not even listed. Nobody could put in the comment and say, I think we should do this or not do this. So that's a, that's a violation of the uh, Administrative Procedure Act. But then comes the kicker. So you're doing all this. You're, you're calling the government and telling them when you're leaving. You're telling them when you're coming back. 
You're uh, telling them generally where you're fishing. You're you're filling out the app, and before you can even land anybody, a half hour before you land, you're telling them how many fish your people caught and what kind of fish and what all all this stuff is on the app, and you're already telling the government this. So obviously, the government has knowledge of how many fish you're taking. And has knows and it can always come to the dock and check that those are the right fish. It can follow up on you. Um, so this oh, uh, this should be fine, right? This should let the government know who's taking its fish. Uh, but no, the government then issued that you have to put it. Uh, they call it a VMS, a, a vehicular monitoring system, because they're the government and they got to be a, a new word, right? But it's a GPS, and you put this GPS on your boat. At your own expense, you buy it, you place it, and then you broadcast your position to the government at least every hour, but hopefully continuously. And the government now has a tracking device on your boat. Now, let's talk about these boats for a bit because it is outrageous. These boats are smaller than the minnow, you know, the U.S. minnow in uh, in, in Gilligan's Island. Uh, and... There's maybe six passengers, usually, maybe. And uh, sometimes they're a little bigger, 10, but maybe usually about six. So sometimes you don't go, you don't use your boat just for charter boat fishing. That's your normal business, but you might take it out on your own to go fishing, which you're perfectly allowed to do. Anyone with with a boat out in the Gulf can go fish. There's no prohibition on that. And you don't get tracked. And so you're not taking any customers you're not using any of your reef or pelagic permits but you're being tracked by the government why is that why what, what's the basis for that then maybe you decide we're not going to do bass boat fixed uh fishing this uh this time what we're actually going to do is we're going to go and uh we're going to take people sightseeing so you take people sightseeing and once you've taken them sightseeing you have to uh you have to then tell where you're going and you have to then um, broadcast your position at all times. Uh, that's outrageous. You're not using the permits. The reason that the hook, if you will, and I, I do comment, most of the opinions that are written in cases with fishing always have various puns. But I realize when talking about it, it's hard not to do. It's, it's very hard not to do because we have so many fishing apps uh, allusions in our language. So the hook, if you will, on which the regulatory agencies, Commerce and NOAA and National Marine Fishery Service uh, all use is they say, well, you're using our, our resource, the fish, and, and you have permits. And so does that mean they get to do anything to you? Anything at all? So we've, ap- we've appealed to the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals because the lower court said, yep, that's what it means. And I'm boiling it down. It's an 80-page opinion with over 400 footnotes. Um, judge uh, obviously uh, took a lot of uh, work on it. We think it's wrong, though. Um, so so uh, the idea in the district court's opinion that is, I think, very dangerous. They, she says that the uh, charter boat fishing business is a closely regulated industry. What does that mean? That means that The industry has been so thoroughly regulated for so long that everybody in it has a diminished expectation of privacy, and therefore Fourth Amendment protections are at their lowest ebb. See, ebb, again, you know, there's tons of sea stuff. 
but that's hugely dangerous. It's hugely dangerous for the government to, by, by taking small bites, regulating this, then that, then that, then that, then that, and then all these small bites add up to the whole cookie, and you're a closely regulated industry, and you don't have any rights under the Constitution anymore. That's where we're going on this. Now, why do they say this? Well, because the commercial fishing industry has a long history of being regulated. And in the 70s, with the tragedy of the commons, with the fact that you could have a lot of foreign fishing boats and, and, and foreign fishing is also closely regulated because we don't want, you know, uh, everybody to come here from China and take all the fish out of the sea and then go back to China. Um, and there has been fights with even uh, in our history over Portugal and the Canadians and all this. And it's, it's, it's been a long, a long problem with, with foreign fishing. So that's a closely regulated industry. And the other problem with that, of course, is foreign fishing boats don't come from American ports. They come from somewhere else. So the Coast Guard gets to pull them over and there's certain rules for them. But that can't be extended to the whole of fishing humanity in the United States because there's there's no history of, of uh, thick regulation of, out of charter boats. Um, it is it is uh, an industry a lot of people go into uh, because of the freedom it pres- provides to go where you want, and do what you want, make your own hours and all the rest of it. So uh, what we don't want ha- to have happen, and, and the Supreme Court, I don't think can fully be blamed for this because the Supreme Court has not said, oh, there's a bunch of closely regulated industries. They've said it's like, you know, uh, explosives, if you make explosives, uh, things like that. But th- I don't think that they've ever said that charter boat fishing is. It's just the lower courts um, often just extend that rubric to businesses that, that it shouldn't extend to. I think in California, one court extended it to babysitting. Um, I, I got to tell you, I, I babysat when I was a teenager and, and, and nobody said boo to me except, uh, except the, except the people who hired me. I mean, I, I, I do not recall any federal regulation of my, uh, my, uh, $3 an hour, uh, rates uh, to 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 watch uh, five-year-olds anyway um so i i think that uh that rubric is very dangerous and we are hoping um that the fifth circuit sees this and the government's response is due in june and then we'll get a reply brief but what we've said is that number one it's not closely regulated um it doesn't fall in that rubric you got to have regular fourth amendment protections and then the Fourth Amendment that says no searches of your person, paper, or effects. Hey, what's effects? Well, it's very interesting. Uh, the Supreme Court has found that a car, for instance, is an effect. So certainly a boat must be an effect. And so uh, it is. It is. It has Fourth Amendment protections. You can't just wave it away. Uh, there's a Constitution. It's got to mean certain things, and it's got to give you a certain amount of uh, protection that you you had when the Constitution was written, and that is really where the interesting part of these cases comes in, because there is a there's always a problem of applying new technology to old constitutional rights. It can't be the the, the paradigm for this. The one we always talk about is an Air Force. We have an Air Force, but the Constitution only allows for naval and, uh, and you know. Uh, Army and Army. the Navy, right? Yeah. Because there was no uh, 
there was there was no air force right i, I think at the time maybe the maybe the french were going up in balloons but nobody else anyway we'll be back we'll let you know what happens in that case mark and i'll be back in a moment Welcome back to Administrative Static. Mark Chenoweth and John Vecchioni with you. And I hope everyone had a wonderful Sanco de Mayo and a, a May the 4th be with you, et cetera. Uh, the case that, that I wanted to bring to our audience's attention today, John, is one that it actually, it actually was filed in March in the Eastern District of Texas, but it somehow escaped our attention for a few weeks. And the... Uh, this is a U.S. District Court for the Eastern District of Texas, uh, the Tyler Division, and the the judge uh, in this uh, in this action is not one I'm familiar with. I don't know if if you are uh, or not, uh, John. Uh, let's see. His name is Jeremy Kernodle, K-E-R-N-O-D-L-E. No, I do not. Okay. Uh, well, the case is Consumers Research. And by two LP plaintiffs, the Consumer Product Safety Commission defendant. And there's lots of interesting things going on uh, in this in this decision. And I I, I stumbled across it uh, partly because of my former involvement in the Consumer Product Safety Commission. I I tend to pay attention to things that are happening over there, and so this one came across across my radar. But John, the the <laughs> Apparently, what happened here is that these folks asked for some FOIA information from the CPSC, and the CPSC had a new rule out uh, about uh, essentially raising the fees for for FOIA. And so they challenged the new rule, and they challenged the – they were initially denied some of their FOIA request, and then they were later granted it. And But one of the questions is whether the later grant would somehow – uh, do away with their standing in the case, uh, and the court decided no because at the point that they challenged it, they had standing, and that's when we that's when we measure standing is at the outset of a case. Uh, and they were still opposed to the rule, uh, of course. And you might think, well, what's the big deal? This is there's there's a run of day FOIA disputes all the time. Well, one of the one of the arguments that that these folks decided to make was that the structure of the Consumer Product Safety Commission is unconstitutional uh, under uh, Humphrey's executor. And those of us, those of you who listen to this program on a regular basis have heard us talk about Humphrey's executor before. It's a case from the 1930s in which the Supreme Court decided that these independent uh, agencies, like in that case, the Federal Trade Commission, uh, that, that they're allowed to exist, even though they interfere with the president's uh, ability to have complete control over the executive branch, and that these, at least these multi-member uh, headed agencies with staggered terms that that uh, are only allowed to have at most three members of the president's party uh, of the five commissioners that that these things are okay but the one of the main reasons why the court 
indicated in Humphrey's executor that this arrangement was okay was because they said that that these you know these entities didn't really uh, didn't really exercise full executive power, didn't really exercise full legislative power, didn't really exercise full judicial power. So even though they might dabble in some of those, uh, there isn't really a, a separation of powers uh, problem. Now, John, I think you would agree with me that that was a bit of a fiction, even at the time that the Supreme Court reached that decision. In, in other words, I, I think even it's the like, FTC of the 1930s probably was doing more than the court let on. And I think it's like international baseball. At the same time, they said baseball was not a national sport. It was just a city and in a, a, non, a non, you know, and, and we've had, we've had that fiction all these years too. Oh, right. For the antitrust exemption for a yeah. for major league baseball. Right. Right. And the, uh, well, I guess I don't want to get too far down that, that tangent, but there are these, these sort of curiosities, uh, uh older cases that just don't ring true when you really uh, dig into them. Uh, and, and there may be some discussion of that uh, later in this program, in fact, uh, of, uh, of, the overturning of precedents that might not make sense. But in any event, uh, for now, let's stick to Humphrey's executor. And the, the, the to the extent it ever made sense, the idea that modern independent agencies are not engaged in the real use of legislative power, the real use of executive power, and the real use of judicial power, it, it's beyond dispute that they're doing those things. And so what, what these plaintiffs decided to do was put the court to the test and say, look, the the agency cites Humphrey's executor as its defense for what it's doing, but it's not, it doesn't come within the defense of Humphrey's executor. Humphrey's executor said that you, that, that, that this is, this sort of arrangement is only okay if you're not doing these kinds of powers. And the CPSC is clearly uh, doing these kinds of, of powers. And so, uh, and, and John in a, in a, in a ruling that, uh, we would love to have uh, from from any court, pretty much that we're in front of, the judge. The judge agreed uh, with this ruling, and not only did he agree with it, and and find for them on standing and so forth, he expedited. He said, I, "I'm going to find for you on this issue, and I'm not going to reach the other couple of issues here because there's no sense in spending all of the time and effort to litigate these other issues in the case if the agency is is you know unconstitutional." So. Let me decide that. We'll send that up to the Fifth Circuit. You guys can argue about that on appeal. And then if, uh, you know, if, if the court sends it back and says that, that the CPSC structure is fine, we can get into these, these other issues. So it, it basically gave the, uh, the parties, or I shouldn't say parties because I'm sure the CPSC didn't want this, but it gave, it gave the, the plaintiff here uh, a rifle shot on the constitutional issue and a straight path uh, right up to the Fifth Circuit a Court of Appeals uh, to decide this uh, issue. And I, I'm sure it's not a coincidence that this case was brought in a district court that reports up to the Fifth Circuit. I suspect that that the folks who are bringing this challenge thought that the judges on the Fifth Circuit might be more open to this point of view than uh, than might other uh, circuit courts. But, but how does that and hit the, you, John? What use, do you think of this? Uh, well, the use of FOIA is clever. Let me put it this way. The, the FOIA suits... The use of FOIA to get this result is very clever. I used to do an awful lot of this type of litigation. In fact, I did the, uh, I, I did the uh, Clinton email case, whether or not they had searched properly enough. And we also did a case um, where it, it, 
you get the discount. You know, you, you talked about fees that you get the discount if you if you're a nonprofit and you run a website where you where you report the news of what you get in your FOIA, you get the news reporter discount for your uh, you know, they don't charge you. So I I have been thinking up clever ways to use FOIA, but I did not think of this one. This is a real um, bank shot to get to Humphrey's executor. And I'm asking you, do you think that this was intentional beforehand before they filed the complaint? Meaning, do I think that they that they asked for things that they thought that that the agency might not be willing to hand over? Were they were they trying to get a no, no on the FOIA think, request? Did they think that the agency would say this and they'd get Humphrey's executor? You think it came out of the blue? Oh, I don't think it came out of the blue because I think I don't think that you would be. Oh, I see what you mean. Do, do I think that the FOIA request, like, did they only come up with these arguments after the after their FOIA request was? was turned down or were they were they thinking of this from the outset? I, I don't know the answer to that, but given where they brought it and so forth, I have to wonder, uh, I have to wonder if this wasn't the idea from, from the beginning. Uh, I guess I'm, I'm more inclined to think that it was a clever use of FOIA than to think that they uh, just sort of had an any port in the storm attitude once their FOIA requests were, were denied, especially since, since the agency turned over a lot of of the FOIA requests, and the other thing is, they uh, they waived the fee because they took more than twenty days to respond to the original FOIA request, and the agency said ordinarily we would deny uh, your fee waiver request uh, under these circumstances, uh, but since we let the twenty days lapse and didn't uh, didn't get back to you uh, as a courtesy, uh, we're going to waive we're going to go ahead and waive the fee. So they pretty much. And I haven't I haven't delved in. I don't know everything they asked for from a FOIA standpoint, but it doesn't look like there's a terribly lot at stake uh, remaining in terms of the material they asked for. Now, uh, part of the issue here is the prospectivity of the relief sought, right? So they're they're concerned that they'll have to pay these fees in the future. They're concerned that the that the uh, the structure of the agency was unconstitutional at the time that it decided the FOIA rule. And so it's seeking prospective relief as to future FOIA requests that it makes. And even during the pendency of this lawsuit, they've made additional FOIA requests. And so the court was was ready to believe that this organization really cares about the FOIA rule, will be a future, uh, th- that its future behavior will be impacted by the agency's FOIA rule, et cetera. So I think they did a pretty good job of, of establishing that the FOIA rule affects these plaintiffs and and getting standing uh, in that way, I don't know that every party would be able to you know to do that. Uh, but uh, I do think that there it really has the feel that they're in this for the bigger picture, uh, and the implications are are staggering, right? I mean, if oh, if there's no the question. Case, if it's the case that the CPSC is is unconstitutionally structured, well, that would be true of the SEC and the FTC and the uh, you know, any of these other agencies where the where the heads of the agency and by heads, I mean, the five commissioners of these agencies are protected from removal. Now, I think what would federal, happen in federal Johnny, reserve different... board that just federal reserve board that just raised basis points, point five. That doesn't affect anyone, does it? <laughs> <laughs> no, but I, I assume that the way that that this would that this would play out is that the independent agencies would remain in effect but they would no longer be independent. And what I mean by that is uh, they would no longer have four cause removal protection. The president could remove 
the commissioners from these agencies at any time for any reason. And if that happened, it would certainly change the character of these of these agencies and they wouldn't be they wouldn't truly be independent. They might be independent in the sense that they would still have an, uh, a relatively narrow mission focus. Uh, and so they would have this, but I, I'm not sure that's really a good use of the word independent. Well, but anyway, I, I, I have to say, I, I've always thought that the Federal Reserve is the thing that the the Supreme Court eventually is the rock upon which this will either break or hold because the, the consequences there are, are huge. So uh, the CPF, the one good thing about it is it's a new agency, right? You can do what you want to it. We we survived for years without it. Yeah, it dates from the from the mid nineteen seventies. So so that's right. Uh, but it's a case worth it's a case worth watching, and we certainly will here. Consumers Research and by two the Consumer Product Safety Commission, headed up to the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit. We'll be back with more on administrative static right after this. 